Welcome to the Dear Christianity Podcast. I am Dale Westervelt. This is Season 1, Episode 1. Let's dive in. I want to do three things in this first episode. First, I'll talk about how the Dear Christianity Podcast has hatched, so to speak. Then a, then a short story about the many years leading up to this Dear Christianity Podcast. Lastly, I want to walk you through the three big ideas that will that this that the podcast and .net website will be built on. First, the origin of the Dear Christianity podcast. It started many years ago as a fictional story that I typed up on a laptop, a story about a widow flying across country and having a conversation with a frequent business traveler. I spent a half a dozen years, many years ago flying all around the country every single week, teaching management and leadership to hospital-based physicians and hospital executives. These were the years that my wife and I were, were having our four children, and I was always on the road. And on a particular flight from Newark, New Jersey to Los Angeles, I opened my laptop, and my thought was I would just put my fingers on the keys and start typing with nothing premeditated, no stray idea about any kind of a storyline, nothing whatsoever. So that's what I did. Totally unpremeditated, started typing away. And what came through my fingers was a fictional story about a, a widow in her late 30s who lost her husband, was riding a bicycle on a Sunday afternoon and was struck by a a drunk driver in broad daylight. She went searching for God and meaning in the Christian church in the midst of her grieving and couldn't find either one. And she's on an airplane to fly to a family reunion. And she sits near a, right beside a frequent business traveler and they end up talking. When she shares her story with him, he is dumbstruck. He's never met a widow under the age of 70 something has no idea what to say. He stumbles through asking her if she has faith. As soon as the words came out of his mouth, he realized that nothing could smooth over the loss of a loved one at such a tender age. And she shares with him her impression and experience of Christians and the Christian church and how it was so unsatisfying. And she even has created a critique of contemporary Christianity. She's a smart woman. She's a lawyer. And he shares with her how he's profoundly sorry that she had such a negative experience. But he can understand how her experience was so dissatisfying. He has seen the church and the downsides of contemporary Christianity and the church. In contrast, he shares with her the gospel filled with good and great promises that are explicitly clear in the scriptures. He points to these passages, reads them aloud to her, talks to her about the person of Jesus, what he did on the cross, what it all means, and how it all fits together. And all of this to her was profound, and it was life-giving, even through her continued or sustained grieving. Toward the end of the story, her, her character writes a full-page ad in the Philadelphia Inquirer. She takes out the ad, 
and she writes a Dear Christianity letter excoriating contemporary Christianity for being so far off base. As the years have gone by since that writing, that story still sits today on my laptop. I've pulled it up many times through the years and massaged it in different ways. And the longer the story went unfinished and unpublished, the more I began to want to write the letter, the Dear Christianity letter. So I did. Uh, I will publish that letter in the autumn. So the Dear Christianity podcast, this podcast, is a forum to both convey the disconnect between contemporary Christianity and the, and the good and great Christian gospel, but also a forum to gather data and feedback from listeners like you who've either been put out or injured by Christians or the church. It'll be a bi-weekly podcast for thoughtful engagement regarding the true essence of the Christian gospel. The entire project, both the podcast and the website, are built on the foundation of three big ideas, which I'll outline in just a few moments. Second, my story. I started going to church as a college freshman in the, in the late 1970s. Never went to church in my life. Grew up in rural southwest Pennsylvania. Met a gal my first semester freshman year. She, she invited me to come to the Fellowship of Christian Athletes meetings. And I very quickly fell in love with the Bible, studying the Bible and theology. And my mind and heart were ablaze regarding the whole theme of grace from the jump. I now know that God put this in my heart because the flame for grace hasn't flickered or been snuffed out in 45 years through all of life's profoundest pains and disappointments. I taught and spoke hundreds and hundreds of times for the first 20 years, either centering on grace or working it into every talk on any passage. And I noticed all the way back in the 80s and 90s that I didn't hear much about Jesus or about grace. I rarely heard much about Jesus in sermons or Christian books or literature. Everything seemed to be about how to be faithful to various callings of God. And when I came to understand what I'll refer to here as the true Christian gospel in the late 19, in the late 80s, I had two reactions. First, for me, the impact was more profound than my original conversion. But second, I was very disappointed to not hear it anywhere. I would have been, I, I would, I should have been disappointed not to be hearing it everywhere, but I couldn't, I didn't hear it anywhere. And I, began to gather that according to ch the church's practice, the church's fundamental operating system, I gathered that Christianity is considered as very little more than just a lifestyle. Everything is about the Christian life, the Christian's life, the moral life of the Christian. So there are personal disciplines, there are social rules, there are insider values, rules, ways of speaking, phrases, but there's no fixation on Jesus. And I'd love it if you just listen to this passage by the Apostle Paul. Paul is the great apostle who was, he's the person God selected to write more than half of what we know to be the New Testament. He did a lot of horrible things before his conversion, 
and did a lot of amazing things afterward. But here in this letter to the church in Philippi, he's referring to his unwillingness to be judged on anything that he'd ever done, good or bad. But here he's referring to the to anything that would be considered good. Here's what he says, quote, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. I count them all as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from, parentheses, my obedience to, close parentheses, the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Folks, find a church, or if you have found a church that preaches about Jesus six times a year, much less every single week, you will have found the proverbial needle in that. If you have found a church that deliberately nourishes you in faith, hope, and love, then you should know that you won the church lottery the day you first got there. Indeed, if you have found a church that grows in you, a love for God's mercy, I hope you'll beg yourself to never leave. After many decades of feeling like a pariah in Christendom, I love that my church is a fountain of light and hope. I'll leave a link to, to that church in the show notes. Lastly, this podcast and DearChristianity.net are built on three big ideas as a platform. There's an obvious and serious problem with, in contemporary Christianity, number one. Number two, the crisis owing to a widespread and fundamental misunderstanding about the essence of Christianity. And number three, the solution is simple and extravagantly good. Let's take them one at a time. There's, a, there's an obvious and serious problem with contemporary Christianity. It's obvious in that it's glaringly obvious that the number of practicing Christians in this country the world's largest religion, Christianity, in the third largest country in the, all the world, the number of practicing Christians in this country have been cut in half in just over 20 years. It will be the stuff of future history books. That's the obvious problem. It's not hyperbole to call it a crisis. The reason it's serious is because this isn't just raw data. This is a massive number of human persons that have been injured, put out, put off, oppressed by Christians and or the church. Number two, the crisis owing to a widespread and fundamental misunderstanding about the essence of Christianity. A misunderstanding that boils down to there's nothing more to Christianity than the Christian's life. In effect, the ancient religion is untethered to the person and work of Jesus, not informed by the biblical life-giving promises of the gospel. It's widespread in that it, this same mindset is present in every type of church you can think of. So churches may differ in their affiliation. Some are denominational, some are non-denominational. And they may differ in their beliefs and practices around things like baptism or communion or 
the pre preferences around music style and worship style. And look, there are surely many church communities that are lively and rich and deeply rewarding. And whatever else may be counted as a true blessing in these communities to their own detriment and the legions who've been put out and oppressed, the vast majority of churches operate with the same misunderstanding that Christianity is nothing more than a lifestyle. It includes worship. It includes social habits. It includes social rules, moral rules. And if churches and Christians were feeding on Christ in the way that Paul described in his letter to the church in Philippi, feeding on Christ and the gospel, the numbers not only would not have cut in half in 22 years, the buildings would be bursting with real humans who live real lives and have real needs and concerns. One thing that can unify a group of humans is their common need for faith, hope, and love. The solution is simple. Not the same as easy, and it's extravagantly good. The simple solution is to do what the Bible says to do. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask for it. Pursue wisdom. It's been said that the sum, S-U-M, of all the wisdom there is to be had consists of two things, knowledge of God and knowledge of self, and that you one cannot have either without having the other or having both. We'll take a deep dive into both of these, both here and at Christianity.net. Think about the anecdote from the Gospels when two of Jesus' disciples came to him and they said, Jesus, tell us which one of us is the greatest in your kingdom. You ever ask yourself why the Messiah ignored the question altogether? And he told them to act like a child. Why would he do that? What does that say? What could that tell us about what Christian maturity looks like and how it likely does not look like moral progress every day in every way I'm getting better and better. It likely looks more like the glorious hymn by Annie Hawks. I need thee every hour. Why can't we consider that Christian maturity is equal to deepening faith, not stronger self-confidence? Lastly, the solution is extravagantly good. Extravagance means beyond the bounds of reason that you can't even, you, your mind can, it, it has to bend and stretch and be reshaped to even understand the goodness and greatness of what Christ has done on our behalf. That's all ours for the taking through the gift of faith. I've seen three Broadway plays in my entire life. I've seen Les Miserables in Los Angeles, Les Miserables in Boston, and Les Miserables in Washington, D.C. The first time I ever saw it was probably, I'm making this up, 35 years ago-ish. I remember being thunderstruck by one of the scenes in there that vividly, and I'm not supposing that this was Victor Hugo's intent, but it's how I took it. The most vivid portrayal of the extravagance of the Christian gospel through a, the scene between the main character, Jean Valjean, a bishop, and some silver candlesticks. Here's the scene. The main character 
is Jean Valjean. Struggling to feed a family of nine on the meager wage of a tree trimmer, himself, his widowed sister, and her seven children. And one night he punches through the window of the local bakery and steals off with a loaf of bread. He's arrested. He's put in the French prison. He becomes a galley slave. He's in there for a total of about 20 years after trying to escape a couple times and getting thrown back in. When we first meet him in the play or on the early pages of the novel, he's a large and hideous sight. He's a big man, sturdy, sweaty, filthy, angry. No one will have him. No one will feed him. He's treated worse than a dog, according to the novel. And when he can't go any longer, it's at nighttime. The first day, he's walked 20 miles. He plops down on a, on a city bench in the town of Digne in Provence. And an old beggar woman with a bony finger points to the bishop's, the, the door of the bishop's castle. Knock there, she says. He does. The bishop opens the door with a wide, warm, genuine smile. Valjean is, is going through a practiced litany of reading the contents of his passport letter that explains that he's obliged to read to the mayor of any new town, that he's an ex-convert from a French prison and he's potentially dangerous. Valjean's trying to take this all in, but he can't really understand it, can't contemplate it all. This man is calling me my friend. I just told him how dangerous I, I am and, and, how, and I know how angry I am. He's feeding me warm food treating me with kindness. The bishop shows Valjean to the guest room by candlelight, gives him a soft bed to sleep on. Valjean hasn't slept on anything softer than planks of wood. And in the middle of the night, there's another pounding noise at the door of the bishop's palace. The French police found Valjean padding through the, the town with a sack of clanking silver pieces, and they've dragged Valjean to the bishop's threshold by the collar. And they want the bishop to s confirm their suspicion that Valjean stole silver from the bishop. The moment the bishop sees Valjean, his face lights up like a candle with a warm, sweet smile. And he says, ah, there you are. I couldn't figure out where you went. And he walks over to the mantle and he grabs his two last remaining valuable pieces in all the world. The two most valuable silver pieces, silver candlesticks. He grabs them, walks to, over to Valjean. He stuffs them in Valjean's sack with a smile and says, I couldn't figure out how you could have left without taking these. They're the most valuable. They'll each fetch a year's wages. And by the way, my friend, monsieur, the door is unlocked day and night for you to come and go whenever you please. Now, I know that much has been made about Les Miserables by Christians and the church as an exemplar of the story of grace, and surely it is that. The bishop, without flinching, chose not to press charges, extended grace to Valjean. But it's much more profound than that. He didn't just erase the debt. He lavished extravagant riches on the criminal, the thief, the beggar thief. And this is 
a mirror reflecting what Christ did on our behalf, what seems to be lost on the church, that it's right in the pages of the New Testament. And not only is it not pulled out and celebrated, it's glossed over and ignored, unseen. The result is what we now have as a crisis in the Christian church. I'm glad you stopped by. Please find my website at dearchristianity.net. Subscribe to the podcast at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're consuming this episode. Leave a review. I would love to know your thoughts. If you have any questions for me, leave them there. Peace and blessings to you. I look forward to seeing you back here at the Dear Christianity podcast. Thanks for listening to today's episode. You can catch up on other episodes at dearchristianity.net slash podcast or browse them in your current app. Also, I'd love for you to leave a review with your thoughts. I'm Dale. I hope to see you here next time at Dear Christianity Podcast.